I've heard it humorously put, atheism is a non-profit organization. But that wasn't the case with the ancient Hebrews. Throughout their history, God would send men called prophets to convey his will to his people. Prophets had a spiritual calling. They had a steely courage. They had a spirit-inspired message. You know, priests received their office by virtue of pedigree, but God picked and appointed his prophets. They were his spokespeople to the nation. You know, a prophet, you might say, was God's bullhorn. He trumpeted God's message. He was pointed. He was candid. He spoke a timely word to a targeted audience. Usually his message was a blend of punishment and promises. He would speak of the need to repent, and then he would promise God's restoration. You know, ultimately, all the Hebrew prophets, they looked forward to the Messiah. Israel would sin and would be judged, but the people's sin wouldn't thwart God's purposes. Messiah would come to restore and renew. The Savior would eventually usher in God's eternal kingdom and fulfill all righteousness. You see, the Hebrew prophets, they were really divided into two categories. There were the writing prophets, and then there were the non-writing prophets. For example, Elijah. You've heard of him. His buddy, Elisha. They were prominent Old Testament prophets, but there were no books written in their name. Among the writing prophets, though, they're divided into two divisions. Major prophets, we call them, and minor prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. There are 12 minor prophets. And, of course, the distinction between major and minor, you, you need to know this, it has nothing to do with their content. The, in fact, the minor prophets, we've just studied them, they pack a powerful message. The minor prophets pack a major message. The designation, though, is all about bulk. Major prophets are major simply because they're longer. They're, they have a larger size. And of the major prophets, understand Isaiah. Isaiah is known as the prince of the prophets. You see, his ministry lasted longer. His style was more eloquent. His message more sweeping than his peers. Isaiah ministered for 60 long years. From 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. Through the reigns of four Judean kings. Isaiah's style revealed an educated author. Hebrew tradition says that Isaiah, he he was a man of rank. He was a member of the royal court. He may even have been a cousin of the southern king Uzziah. And Isaiah's name reflects his message. It means Jehovah is salvation. You see, no other prophet more vividly describes the coming of King Jesus than does Isaiah. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he came to the synagogue one day in Nazareth, and he read the scriptures. His desire was to reveal his intentions, the purpose for his ministry. Presumably, all the Old Testament was at his disposal that day. But he turned in the scroll to the prophet Isaiah. In fact, he chose Isaiah chapter 61. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah predicted the intentions, the mission 
of our Lord Jesus. Isaiah predicted the virgin birth of Jesus. We'll discover this in chapter 7. As well as Jesus' character and his life and his miracles and his death and his resurrection and his second coming and his future kingdom. In fact, Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. There's so much in it about Jesus. It's quoted more times in the New Testament than any other prophet. There are at least 66 direct quotations. You know, it's interesting. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah and there are 66 chapters in, uh, 66 books in your Bible. Notice the parallel. In fact, Isaiah's first 39 chapters speak of God's law and judgment on Israel. The last 27 chapters speak of God's grace and salvation toward Israel. Now think about this, how ironic. The Old Testament is made up of 39 books that speak of what? God's law and His judgment. The New Testament consists of 27 books that speak of God's grace and salvation. It's as if the book of Isaiah is a mini-Bible The message of the whole Bible is packed into this one book, Isaiah. Hey, it's going to be a fun study. Well, chapter 1, verse 1 begins. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, after the reign of King Solomon, the Hebrew nation became embroiled in civil war. The northern ten tribes succeeded. They became known as the kingdom of Israel. Their capital was the city of Samaria. The southern two tribes remained faithful to Solomon's heir, Rehoboam. The kingdom of Judah maintained Jerusalem as its capital. Now Isaiah ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah just before and just after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was a troublesome time. Uzziah was a good and godly king. He reigned 52 years from 792 to 740 B.C. And his obedience to God created a stability and a season of prosperity for Judah. For the next 18 years, Uzziah's son, Jotham, followed in his father's footsteps. But Jotham's son, Ahaz, rebelled against God. His 19 years of idolatry set the nation Judah up for judgment. And God's means of discipline came in the form of a ferocious, bloodthirsty army known as the Assyrians. You know, today, even secular folks know the name Isaiah. But unless you're a scholar of Eastern civilizations, names like Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmanazir, Sargon, Sennacherib, These are probably pretty meaningless to you. Sounds like the names of a new video game, doesn't it? And yet, in the late 8th century B.C., these were the names that dominated world headlines. You know, turn on CNN, and these were the names you heard. These ruthless Assyrian kings were bent on conquest and expansion and world domination. And Isaiah lived his whole life in the shadow of this Assyrian threat. Let me chart it for you. In 734 B.C., early in Isaiah's ministry, Tiglath-Pileser, he drove his Assyrian army into northern Israel, sacking its villages, deporting its people. 
13 years later, in 722 B.C., his successor, Shalmanazir, laid siege to Israel's capital, Samaria. His son, Sargon, finished the sacking of Samaria and took her inhabitants captive. A few years later, his successor, Sennacherib, drove his army further south, pillaging the suburbs of northern Jerusalem, eventually surrounding the city in 701 B.C. You see, for 40 years, Isaiah heard the Assyrian train rumbling down the tracks, getting closer and closer to a collision. His mission was to warn Judah that unless she repent, she would suffer the same plight as her northern sister, Israel. Now, Isaiah begins in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Some of you can say the same thing. For over 700 years since he brought Israel out of Egypt, God had parented his people. He was loving and patient. He provided and taught and disciplined. God had been a faithful father to his people Israel, and yet they had rebelled. God tried it all. Hey, don't you feel so bad? (laughs) God tried it all. I know you have too. He'd punished Judah with famine. He had rewarded the nation, on the other hand, with prosperity. He had tried it all. Neither worked, for these people were constantly bucking against his will. After a while, what's a parent to do? Verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. What a sad verse. The word crib here means feed trough. You know, a donkey will wander away until it gets hungry, and then it returns where? It comes back to its master's crib. It comes back home. It's time to eat. In fact, recently, police in Haifa, Israel, used this verse to track down a smuggling ring. This ring, these burglars were using ox-drawn carts to transport stolen goods. Well, after capturing some of the oxen, the police allowed the animals to get hungry for a few days. And then they turned them loose. And guess where they went? Just as Isaiah had predicted, they headed straight for their master's crib. They led the police right back to the smuggler's hideout. You've heard the expression, dumb as an ox. You heard that expression? Some folks are dumber than an ox. They get hungry spiritually. But rather than head back to their master's crib, they turn to pills or booze or sex or sports. You know, they make the age-old mistake of trying to quench a spiritual thirst with a physical physical pleasure. Oh, faith understands that we'll find our feed at the master's feet. Hey, next time you get bored, next time you get lonely, don't run off to your girlfriend's crib or to your homie's crib. Like a smart ox, take your emptiness to the master's crib. Let him meet the need of your life. Well, verse 4, he says, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden, or literally loaded down with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. God is not mincing words here. He goes on. 
They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. You know, if you're not pursuing God tonight, you're heading backwards. Remember that wonderful promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 11? There Jesus invites us all. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice here, he talks about sin. He says, those who are laden or loaded down. That's what sin does for you. It loads you down. Jesus lightens your load. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice too here, Isaiah's favorite title for God. It appears here in verse 4. He calls God the Holy One of Israel. Did you know of the 31 times this phrase appears in Scripture, it's used by Isaiah 26 times. It's his favorite name for God. You see, Isaiah sees God's impeccable purity. And in light of God's holiness, the Holy One of Israel, Israel's sin seems that much more deplorable. They have insulted the Holy One. I like what author Philip Yancey, he makes a comment on God's dealings in the Old Testament. He says this, Jehovah does not think like a social worker. He behaves instead like a holy God trying desperately to communicate to cantankerous human beings. I like that. It's true. At times God vents his frustration. At times he gets angry. You know, he's not always delicate or diplomatic. We forget sometimes that God is the Holy One of Israel and He despises His people's sin. Well, in verse 5, Isaiah asks, Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. Your thought hit me this past week. Have you ever considered that there's a fine line between stubborn and stupid? (laughs) You know, I've met a lot of smart people whose stubbornness nullified their brilliance. They ended up no better than stupid because they were so stubborn. Well, this is how I see Israel. They revolted again and again and again, even though God was always faithful to discipline them each time. You know, it's been said, true stupidity is making the same mistake over and over while expecting a different result. That was Israel. God asked them, why why would you want to be stricken again? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. I mean, Judah is still licking her wounds from the last divine spanking, and now they persist to continue in their sin and rebellion. They won't even give themselves a chance to heal, is what he's saying. Give yourself a reprieve. Of course, behind this all is is the principle that we should never forget. Hebrews 12, verse 6 teaches us, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Did you know that if you're a child of God, you should expect a spiritual spanking from time to time? It happens to us all. The Lord is faithful to discipline His kids. Well, He says in verse 7, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city 
Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We had, would have been made like Gomorrah. Ten of Israel's tribes, 12 tribes, the whole northern kingdom, had been wiped out by the Assyrians. All that was left now was a remnant. Just these two tribes, these southern tribes, Judah and Simeon, they were all that was left. But now they're surrounded by Assyrian troops. He says like a hut in a garden of cucumbers. Oh, I suppose that you could say the nation Judah was in a real pickle. Like a hut in a garden of cucumbers. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Of course, Isaiah is speaking metaphorically here. He, he refers to Judah as Sodom and Gomorrah to stress the depth of their sin. Now, in verse 11, God has a beef with the people's beef. Their sacrifices. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. In in other words, what if someone brings a sacrifice to God when there's stubbornness in their heart? He goes on, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They they are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. This would be like us all coming together to worship God here at Calvary Chapel and God saying, wait a minute, I I hate your gatherings. I hate your worship services. Here's what was going on. The, The religious ritual and the spiritual sacrifice that they were offering, was worthless to God because it was covering up the rebellion in their heart. God says, you're trampling my courts. You know, the Bible refers to our acts of devotion. There's a name for our acts of devotion. The Bible calls them labors of love. This is what they should be. Our worship, our prayers, our raising our hands, this should all be an overflow of our love for God, not a substitute for it. Obviously, expressions of worship are very important. Acts of allegiance are significant. Lovers know this truth. It's so important. If you're married, it's important that you express your love in tangible ways to your spouse. It's important that we express our love to God. But we need to remember, God won't be played. He hates it when a person goes through the motions without the devotion. He despises a faith that's a farce. And we can be just as guilty when we sing our songs and when we raise our hands and when we give our offering as these people were. Let's make sure God has no beef with our beef. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. What irony! Bloody hands, guilty of mischief and violence, are lifted to God in worship. Do you think God accepts that? God has no part in that worship. He ignores such prayers. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Here's what God desires. Not beef, but belief. True faith, true repentance gets rid of the negative. Yes, it washes, it puts away, it ceases. But notice, it also practices the positive. For he tells us to learn and to seek and to defend. It's not just ceasing to do evil, but it's learning to do good. This is what God expects of us. Now, I love verse 18. It's, it's quite an invitation. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. God is inviting Judah to settle her disputes out of court. In other words, he doesn't want to judge his people. God has a beef with Judah. God has a dispute with Judah. And he doesn't want to go to court with these people. He wants to settle this out of court. He wants to settle his grievances before he as the judge is forced to render a verdict. God is offering the nation an opportunity to repent. He says, come now and let's reason together. And if they do, he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, nothing is as pristine as a freshly fallen snow. It covers everything. I, I love it when, it when it falls on my backyard. There's dirt and junk. <laughs> you know, and there's garbage all over the place. And, and yet that freshly fallen snow, it just sort of covers the dirt and covers the junk and covers the trash with a blanket of purity. And this is what happens to our past when we're forgiven by God. His pardon sticks to us like a freshly, fluffy, clean snow. I love this. Judah can avoid God's judgment and be clothed in his purity and in his righteousness if they repent and believe. And his promise is for you too. Verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Judah this day has a choice, Isaiah says. It's up to them. With obedience comes blessing, with rebellion comes destruction. Now in verse 21, Isaiah compares Jerusalem to, of all things, a harlot. She's committed to spiritual harlotry. She's given her heart away to idols. She's broken her vow to God. And Isaiah shouts out how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Oh, the righteousness of Judah had gotten watered down. It had been defiled with impurities and diluted with water. And, and I guess the question for us tonight is, is has our love for God been diluted? Has, has our righteousness been tainted? You know, in today's world, compromise is an all too common thing. Compromise. I like this definition. Compromise is feeding the alligator only to ensure that you're the last one eaten. <laughs> but you will be eaten. Better to stand your ground at the outset, don't you say? Better not to compromise. Better to dig in your heels and refuse to budge. This is what God wants from us. 
Not, not to dilute our love for him. Not to defile our righteousness. He says, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. And notice here he uses three titles for God. Could be a subtle reference to the Trinity, don't you think? God is one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here he quotes the triune God. He says, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your aloe. God promises to judge his people in a way that will purify them. He says, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Notice God's judgment. It's really just a first step in his restoration. And I hope you know that's always the case. God punishes to purify. His goal is always our reconciliation. And, you know, here's a promise with the future, by the way. Never in the history of Jerusalem has the city ever qualified as the city of righteousness. And yet one day it will be called that. That name looks forward to the day when Jesus comes to earth and establishes his kingdom. And he rules the world where? From Jerusalem. In that day, she will be known as the city of righteousness. Well, verse 27 tells us, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness, the destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be, get, shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. And again, this is a, an indictment on their idolatry. The ancient pagans, they, they worshipped fertility gods. And they would do so by growing groves of trees and then trimming them in the shape of phallic symbols. And God sees this idolatry going on in Judah. And he says that one day you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be embarrassed of the mistakes that you've made. He says, for you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades. And as a garden that has no water, the strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. And there's chapter 1. Chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. And here's a term that usually takes us to the end of time, at least the end of this present age. It's the term, the latter days. I think this term is synonymous with another term we often hear, called the day of the Lord. Now, now remember, today is what? Today is not the day of the Lord. Today is the day of man. Man is having his say on planet earth. You know, man is, is getting his way. But the day is coming. We call it the day of the Lord when God is going to have the final say. When God is going to intervene in human affairs. When God's will will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. And Isaiah's focus is on that day. He calls them the latter days. He says, and in that day, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. 
Now, the mountain of the Lord's house is, it can only be one mountain. It's the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah. It's there in Jerusalem. It was the mountain on which the temple was built. And, and if you've been to Israel with us, you've been to this very spot. You've stood where Jesus stood. And, and more importantly, you've stood where Jesus will one day stand when he rules the whole world and all the universe. You've been there. It's incredible. In fact, we're told that all nations will flow there. Once a year, they'll come up to Jerusalem, to this mountain. Now today, the Temple Mount is controlled by the Waqf, which is the Islamic religious authority. In fact, you are forbidden to bring a Bible on the mountain. And yet I've known some sneaky pastors who slipped a Bible in their pants and tucked it up under their jacket and snuck a Bible onto the Temple Mount and actually stood there and read the Bible in defiance to the Muslim authority on the Temple I know of sneaky pastors who've done this. But understand, the practice is officially forbidden. And yet how ironic... Where the Bible is forbidden to be read today, one day all the nations will flow to that same spot. And from there, Jesus will teach them the Bible. We will have Bible study with Jesus in that same spot. Verse 3 tells us, many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. Apparently that Islamic authority. It'll no longer be there. Jesus will have taken care of that. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, verse 4 is a famous verse that speaks of the Messiah. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What a day that'll be. Messiah will be Prince of Peace. Jesus will orchestrate what has eluded mankind since Cain and Abel and their conflict. A genuine and a lasting peace Jesus will create on this earth. You know, there's a stone wall at the United Nations that bears an inscription. On this stone wall, you find the second half of Isaiah 2, verse 4. Ironically, it was a gift to the United Nations from the former Soviet Union. And it should not surprise you that the godly atheists who gave them this gift left off the first half of verse 4. Notice what the first half says. He shall judge the nations and rebuke the people. Understand, there can be no real peace... There can be no turning swords into plowshares until what happens? Until righteousness is established on the earth. Until righteousness comes, we need swords to keep the peace. No real peace can occur until true righteousness is established. That's why Jesus is going to judge the nations. And he's going to rebuke many people. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Don't misunderstand. He is the Prince of Peace. But He only takes that mantle after He's killed off everyone who opposes the one true God. And has brought righteousness and judgment to this earth. 
Verse 5 is an indictment that not only fits Judah of old, but it could also apply to modern-day America. Listen to these words. He says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Now, sadly, our country today is also full of eastern ways. Rather than remain true to our Judeo-Christian heritage, modern American culture has embraced a lot of eastern mysticism and Roman paganism, and even New Age religion. You know, there was a day when stress relief came in the form of prayer. Today it's yoga, or it's mindless meditation. There was a time when ball players asked God for help to achieve their best. Today they do what? They visualize. These are all Eastern terms. It's interesting, the secular vocabulary in our culture has changed. Biblical terms have been replaced with Eastern inferences. For example, bad circumstances. That's no longer referred to as a test of God or even the judgment of God. Now it's bad karma. That's what we call it. The other day, I heard a pastor use the expression, well, in a former life... Now, now I know that pastor doesn't believe in reincarnation. But his passing comment is just evidence of how deeply Eastern thought has permeated Western culture. The problem is, is that biblical truth is no longer our bedrock. Tragically, we've come full circle. You know, as Christianity began to spread in the early centuries of of this millennium, as it began to spread across the Roman world, It liberated culture from pagan superstition and from Eastern philosophy. Biblical Christianity spawned an incredible prosperity around the Western world. But now, rather than thanking God, we've rejected His truth and we've re-embraced the lies of the devil. It's tragic. And not only had Judah become perverted, notice the nation has also become greedy. Verse 7, he says, Their land is also full of silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. And there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. That which their own fingers have made. People bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore do not forgive them. And and this is so important you understand. Don't expect God to forgive you if you're hanging on to a bag full of idols. You know, there's a common error in the church today. Yes, forgiveness is free. Absolutely. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve God's forgiveness. Salvation is by grace through faith. But don't expect Jesus to save a person he cannot rule. You've got to embrace the Lord if you want to know his pardon. And how can you grab his salvation if your hands are full of other stuff? Idols that you worship, other things that you you hold to and that you're allied to. It is so true. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You know, the day is coming when God is going to humble all mankind. Verse 10 tells us, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. (laughs) You remember remember what I said earlier? There's a fine line between stubborn and stupid. 
You know, even when men know that God is boss, rather than submit to his authority, they run from his authority. He, he call, it's caused by pride and by stubbornness. Here he says they, they, they hide from the terror of the Lord. Rather than repent, they hide. He says the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Reminds me of what the elder senator said to his freshman colleague right after he got elected. One day the men were talking and the, the older senator, he looked out the window at the Potomac River and he pointed to a log passing down the river. And he turned to his, his freshman colleague and he said, Washington is like that log. There are probably 100,000 grubs, ants, bugs, and critters on that old floating log. And I imagine every one of them thinks he's steering it. But you know, that's not just true of Washington. That's probably true of every city. One day, God is going to humble us. One day, we're all going to learn that we're not the captain of our own ship. That God calls the shots. That he's in control. That he is master and commander. Well, we're told... For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful slopes. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, And the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols, they'll be utterly abolished. One day, humble pie is going to get added to everybody's diet. Hey, take a slice of humble pie from time to time. It's good for you. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now, this is probably yet future. You know, the book of Revelation depicts cataclysmic judgments that are going to rock this world just prior to the return of Jesus. I believe this is going to happen. I believe we're seeing the foreshakings of it now. Wow. Floods in strange places, earthquakes in strange places. Jesus predicted these things. But in that day, the upheaval will be so severe that earthlings will hide in holes in caves, as as Revelation tells us, from the wrath of the Lamb. How's that for an oxymoron? The wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but one day He's going to roar like a lion. Apparently, Isaiah saw the same vision that was foreseen by John in Revelation. You know, I love what J. Vernon McGee once said about this. Listen to his comment. He said, I don't know whether men were ever cavemen or not, but in the future, men will be living in caves. (laughs) The inhabitants of planet Earth in that day will try to duck God's judgment, but they'll fail. Verse 20, in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. 
Boy, when God shakes things up, men will realize their impotence and the impotence of worthless idols. They'll run for cover. Either they'll run into the arms of love or they'll turn and run from God's judgment. Verse 22, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? This could be a reference to the Antichrist. For in the days of God's final judgment, what the Bible calls great tribulation, the world will put its trust in man. Antichrist will be hailed as mankind's savior, but the world will quickly discover that his promises are sinister and selfish. And, and here Isaiah is telling us, don't trust a man in whose nostril, in whose breath, or whose, in whose nostrils is breath. In other words, a mere mortal man, don't trust him. Be, be on guard against him. Now chapter 3, we'll cover one more chapter. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Boy, when judgment comes, commerce will end. The mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder and the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the expert enchanter and men who occupied important posts are going to be rushed off into battle and never return. He says, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the older, the elder, and the base toward the honorable. Calamity will befall Jerusalem. Chaos will infiltrate the family. And then he says, children will buck and defy and dishonor their parents. Boy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lists some of the characteristics of the last days. He says perilous times will come. And how do you identify them? One of the ways, he says, is disobedient to parents. And this is certainly happening today. You know, a lot of parents have just lost control. Parents who were afraid to discipline their kids earlier in their life now have undisciplined teenagers. I guess you could say the the inmates are now in charge of the asylum. You know, it's revealing when companies no longer market products to the parents of children. Their advertisements today go right past the parents and they target the kids directly. Why is that? It's because the kids are the ones that are in charge. The parents refuse to put their foot down and say no. The kid that gets everything he wants... And then later the parent is surprised when that same child lacks the ability to say no to his own desires. Why? He's been given everything. Hey, children are like stomachs. They don't need everything you can afford to give them. Trust me. Once there was an Englishman on holiday in America. He, he remarked, he said, What impressed me most about America was how the parents obeyed the children. He goes on, he says, When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power, in that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your eels, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. I mean, times are going to get so tough that good men won't even try their hand at public service. Everyone will just be a recluse and sort of, revert back to looking out for themselves. And, and isn't that the case today? Our problem today 
isn't just voter apathy. Even if we get 100% turnout, do we have any good candidates to vote on? I mean, it seems like we've run off good people from even wanting to pursue public office. Verse 8, For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom and they do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. You know, the city of Sodom was infamous for a number of reasons. Exodus 16 mentions her pride and her greed. But in Genesis 18, Sodom is also accused of a shameless acceptance of homosexuality. She was so depraved and so callous toward conscience and toward nature and toward godliness that homosexual behavior became legitimized in Sodom. And has this not happened in our culture today? They declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. In today's promiscuous society, homosexuals feel emboldened. They're free to come out of the closet. There's no longer a shame attached to their sin. It's been legitimized and accepted. And it's not only an indictment against the homosexual, but it's also an indictment against the society at large. God judged Sodom for her blatant rebellion against God and nature. It's clear from Scripture. This is what prompted Billy Graham several years ago to make this comment. He says, if God does not judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom. I think that's true. Verse 10, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. In other words, you reap what you sow. Verse 12, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them, O my people. Those who lead lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. And boy, this also sounds like modern American culture. You know, the greatest social problem in our country today, in my opinion, by far, the greatest social problem is the absence of strong biblical male leadership. Children oppress and women have to rule. Why? Because men have bailed out on leadership. Men are missing in action. Absentee dads, promiscuous husbands, are an epidemic today. You know, I used to think that women wanted to rule over men. But but I'm afraid that most women end up doing so out of necessity. Deep in a woman's heart, she wants a man that she can trust and that she can follow. She desires a loving leader. But after being jilted a few times, she begins to grow a distrust toward men. She ends up bitter and calloused and cautious. She's afraid to let the man lead. Oh boy, here's the challenge today for us all. Men need to stand up and lovingly lead, and women need to let them. And if they do, society will grow stronger and children will grow healthier. Verse 13 tells us, The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of His people and His princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard, 
The plunder of the poor is in your houses. Why do you, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts? Here's another mark of a society in decline. Cruelty toward the poor. You know, the Israelis had a unique welfare system. A portion of the crop was just left out in the fields unharvested. Thus, the poor had an opportunity to come along behind the harvesters and glean what was left. This was more than a handout. This allowed poor people to show initiative and take take some action and actually work to receive their benevolence. This was a great system. But here God rebukes His people for eating up the vineyard. You're not leaving anything for the poor. You're plundering their house, He says. Your greed for poor is robbing, your greed for, for more is robbing the poor man's stomach. He says, moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Oh boy. Well, Isaiah. He's measuring the moral and the spiritual decline of Judah. And he's marked a number of ways in which the people have grown immoral and and unspiritual. Disrespect toward parents. He's mentioned that. Quality of candidates. He's mentioned that. Acceptance of homosexuality. Another mark of spiritual decline. Absence of male leadership. Callousness towards the poor. But here he mentions another benchmark. The attitude of a society's women folk. In Isaiah's day, the women were vain and seductive and materialistic. (laughs) And here's a message for Mother's Day, I suppose. Women need to guard their hearts. You see... Jerusalem's desperate housewives. They had an unhealthy independence from their husbands. They abandoned domestic responsibilities rather than than prioritizing their family and their kids in their home. Isaiah says they walked around with jingling jewelry. Now, mincing. He talks talks about they minced as they go. What does mincing mean? It means pampered. The Jerusalem desperate housewives, they were pampered. They were selfish. They were spoiled. Recently, a woman was quoted in the L.A. Times as saying, men don't understand that shopping is our drug of choice. She was justifying the stash of credit cards she hid from her husband. Well, this was the attitude in Isaiah's day. The women cultivated outward beauty, not inward. Their lives were about appearance, not substance. They impressed with vice, not virtue. And here Isaiah promises punishment on these ladies. He says in verse 17, Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. That's pretty severe. He's basically saying, this vain woman, she's going to spend all this money on her hair, fixing up her hair, and God's going to replace her stylish locks with a bald, ugly scab. (laughs) Pretty heavy judgment. 
Your beauty parlor budget's going to go right down the tubes. In verses 18 through 23, it's as if Isaiah takes a lady's purse and just turns it upside down and dumps out its contents. He says, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, and the scarves, and the crescents, and the pendants, and the bracelets, and the veils, and the headdresses, and the leg ornaments, and the headbands, and the perfume boxes, and the charms, and the rings, and the nose jewels. Nothing new, by the way, about nose rings. The Orientals had them. And the festive apparel, and the mantles, and the outer garments, and the purses, and the mirrors, and the fine linen, and the turbans, and the robes. Ladies, the Lord of glory has gone through your closets and your drawers. He has examined your wardrobe, and he has found nothing there of true and lasting value. Verse 24 tells us of the horrors of war, that the horrors of war are coming upon the spas and salons of Jerusalem. He says, so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And branding, instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate, shall sit on the ground. He's saying that the smell of perfume will be masked by soot from the fire. New scarves and hair color will be replaced with sackcloth and shaved heads. Her captors will adorn her wrists and ankles, not with bracelets, but with ropes. Rather than cosmetics, she'll be branded with the marks of slavery. Isaiah is warning the people of Jerusalem, judgment is going to come unless you repent. Warning the ladies, as well as the men. He's saying, beware. And there we have the first three chapters of the book of Isaiah. 